All right, without further ado, I am super excited to jump into our keynote interview for this morning. Allow me to welcome up Jacopo Tagliabu, former director of Covio and member of South Park Commons. Ciao. Hi, everybody. How are you? Good, good. And you? Thanks so much for having me. I am wonderful. I am super excited for the interview. Let's just get started by having you share a little bit about your background and your recent experience. You're in the middle of a transition now. Exactly. So up until very recently, I was the director of AI at Coveo, a public Canadian company in AI SaaS, which I guess would feature prominently uh, today in, uh, in our chats. And before that, so I joined Coveo because Coveo acquired my own startup, which was called Tuzo, which was a startup in Silicon Valley doing natural language processing for e-commerce. It was a glorious day before MLOps, Snowflake, and all the fancy things. So it was when you still have a lot of stuff to do yourself, basically. And then I enjoyed my role at Coveo in the last three years doing both AI and the research level system and also MLOps and actually productionize those insights for you know, hundreds of customers at the same time. And now I'm building a new company in the, in the data space, but that's a different story. <laughs> That's awesome. So you've been a very outspoken, shall we say, critic of the way some folks are approaching MLOps. I think, you know, that may be too harsh, but I think you maybe a realist is a great way to characterize your perspective. You've taken a pragmatic approach to MLOps. Talk a little bit about the way you see folks pursuing MLOps and some of the ways that that kind of varies from your experience. Yeah, I mean, critic may be too harsh. I would say just Italians, you know, as we like to criticize everything just as our default mode. But definitely, so more than a critic, I think that what we did, not just me, but my team at large, kind of identified this gap like 18 months ago, starting something like that with the bigger boat repo. Identify this gap in the market, not just the market of tools, but most like in the market of ideas. As in, a lot of people were talking about MLOps either by, this is what we did at Uber or Pinterest, which is amazing. And then this is a flash tutorial to put a cycling model online. So there was these two words. It's like the <laughs> hyper simple thing, the toy thing, which is good to start. You know, my, my students at NYU do that. It's awesome. You need to start somewhere. And then there's what people do at company with a limited budget, a limited talent, a limited resources, and so on and so forth. But the truth of the matter is most people are actually in the middle of this distribution. Most yeah. people, unfortunately, for a living, they cannot just put a flask cap online. We, we need to do a bit more than that. How easy would it be my job if that was just the job? So it's a bit harder than the tutorial that you see online. But honestly, it's not, I wouldn't say maybe it's easier, but it's not the same type of difficulty that you find when you have this planetary scale infrastructure where everything customized to your need. And so our idea as a team was, well, we did this before. We made all possible mistakes in, in this field because we built it at garage scale, at scale-up scale, and IPO scale. So we did this, this mistake at different scale. Why don't we tell people what we did so maybe we save them some time? And so that's how we kind of the reasonable scale thing started and, you know, and all of that. Yeah. You know, in hearing you describe this, I'm thinking that in large part, an important part of this is kind of the distinction between, you know, where we were several years ago and where we are today, right? Several years ago, it was important to take a look at what Google and Facebook and Uber were doing because they were the ones that were being successful at getting models into production. And they had identified a lot of best practices that we could take. You know, the fact that you need tooling and you need platform, you can't just do it all in a notebook. Like that was an important realization at the time. But now 
the opportunities are much broader. There's a lot more to learn from, you know, a lot more companies that are having success and doing it in more of a a scaled down way. So to your point, not everyone has to try to be Facebook now. Absolutely. But I think there's still a lot of value into seeing what Uber or Pinterest or whatever Google does. Yeah. In the same sense, I always use my tennis metaphor. In the same sense, you know, I really enjoy watching Roger, well, Roger Ferry doesn't play anymore, but like Rafa Nadal training or Novak Djokovic training and so on. And that's part of the way also why you understand what the best and brightest do. You know, what is the top level of sophistication you go to a field? And there's a lot mm-hmm. of value in that. Because maybe one day, hopefully, you're going to compete at that level or similar to the level. And so it's very good to know where is the north and start. But then when you go and you train, like myself, I don't train like Rafa Nadal, let's be honest. I'm just trying to get the ball on the other side. And so if my tennis teacher would teach me, like they teach Rafa, it will actually be completely, would be completely oblivious to the situation. Yeah. The context in which you're in makes some things more important and something less. And I think it's very important to not go all big tech kind of like fetish of like, oh, the only good things in MLOps can only be done at that scale because I think that's false. There's a lot of super interesting ML that can be done at any scale, actually. Yeah. Another dimension to the conversation is a lot of the folks that we point to, the Facebooks and the Ubers, they're serving these broad B2C audiences, whereas much of the opportunity or there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for B2B companies and they don't have the same sets of issues or or problems or the same sets of data, the same sets of, they're not set up in the same way as B2C companies tend to be. So I'd like to maybe dig into that a little bit and talk a little bit about some of the ways that B2B is different. Absolutely. So first of all, I think there are like two types of B2Bs that are very relevant for ML and that are really, really at the beginning of their journey. One is B2B company like Tuzo, Coveo, and so on, which are really ML companies. As in, we serve businesses with ML. So models is what we do. And so, as you can guess, MLOps in these companies is super important because what you really do is serve model at scale for hundreds of thousands of customers. So that's one important type of B2B. And of course, most of my experience, direct experience come from that. But there's a lot of other super important potential. In B2B app, the expensify of this world, the gust of this world, you know, the SaaS that actually are eating the world in many sense inside SMBs or enterprises, they may have small models as part of their offering. I don't know, Expensify may have a machine learning model identifying the type of food that you are expensive or something like that, okay? And this type of companies have very different challenges than the people building a recommender system for Airbnb, for example. And I like to think about usually three dimensions of, of differences. One is data, which is most quality, quantity, variety, and so on and so forth. Another is modeling like the actual model that actually will do the job and the type of effort that is required for the model to be successful. And third one is tooling. Okay, let's say you fix the data, a lot of work. Let's say we fix the model and we can discuss that a lot of work. But the last part is how do you make that productive at scale? Whereas scale EL doesn't mean one single website visited by 100 million people like Amazon every day. It may mean 100 enterprises with 2,000 access each that you still have to run in parallel. And of course, as you can imagine, tooling and automation is super important. So these three dimensions are very different between the typical B2C use cases and all the B2B use cases that I've seen in my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Your first set of B2B companies are folks that are creating models. The second are B2B. The example you gave was a B2B software company. To what extent do the differences that you see also apply to kind of individual B2B companies that are trying to take advantage of ML to serve their users, their customers? 
Yeah, so I, I think it's, for them, the sophistication of model compared to Akobeo or Tools of this world is going to be a bit less important. If, if we go to Dietrich's access, so the data party may be easier because the data that this company uses are data that they own generating their own platform. So in some sense, they control that part, which is not true for model providers. But the modeling aspect, even if we can say maybe even less sophisticated, because at the end of the day, that model is really part of a bigger value proposition to serve their customer. While if you're a company that sells models as an API, you literally sell models. Your model better be good. So that's, that, I think that's a fundamental aspect there in terms of the evaluation of the company or the marketing or differentiation. When you think holistically, not just ML, but how ML play a role in the company's success, people that do models for a living still have a higher bar to somehow execute in the ML part than people that build B2B SaaS whose component may be powered by ML in some sense. There's still a lot of challenges there, especially on the tooling side, if you go around the three dimension. But I think it's fair to say, you know, that people don't buy Expensify because of their ML models. They buy Expensify because of the experience, because it's so well thought and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But there's an argument to make that people buy Coveo or Bloomage or whatever because of their model. Like that's literally what these companies sell. So I think even the type of people that you're going to hire, the type of resources you're going to invest, they kind of change a bit between these two types of B2B companies. And again, B2C is a completely different game, again, in this sense. Yeah. Yeah, before we dig into data modeling and tooling, I'd love to dig into the, the value proposition that you alluded to a second ago, the way folks in B2B think about ROI and how that differs from folks on the B2B side. What's your experience there? So I think a huge part of being good at ML is connecting ML to something that the company work or care about. I, I know that sounds like a cliche now everybody <laughs> says that, but like it really is. Mm -hmm. And the crucial thing when you consider a recommender system in Airbnb versus a recommender system in B2B is that it's much harder to detect and make the case or even to somehow orient yourself in the B2B case than in the B2C case. What do I mean by that? You work for a recommender system at, let's say, Amazon, even super clear case. You make a 1% improvement at the recommender system. That translates in a, a billion dollars at the end of the year. Yeah. Everybody claps their hands. You're paying for the salary <laughs> of your team. You know, Jeff is happy. Know, Jeff is not there anymore, but whatever. Like everybody's happy and, and that's fine. It's not that easy. Of course, this is a simplified, stripped down version of the entire story. But there's a clear sense in which what you do is immediately somehow available to the rest of the company to build upon and have success. And that's a very clear case. But now think if you're building a recommender system for 100 e-commerce that are not yours. You don't own mm -hmm. e-commerce. You don't own the data. You don't know the final shoppers, okay? So let's say you make a 1% improvement in your recommender system. What happens to your company? Well, nothing, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Why? Well, for, for two reasons. One is because your 100 customer, your 100 enterprise customer you're serving are not Amazon. You know, each one of them are not Amazon, right? Yeah. So it means that 1% improvement for that is not going to result, unfortunately, in a billion dollar of, of revenue more. But even more subtly, even if that was the case, your typical business model, being a SaaS provider, is not related to the improvement directly. So even if you made $1 billion for them more, you're not going to pocket the money directly, okay? The business model of SaaS is typically consumption or whatever it is, but it's something along that line, which means that improving the model per se is not as no short-term gain, okay? Of course, if your model sucks, nobody's gonna buy your product, so you're gonna go out of business. But it's a much indirect relationship between what you're doing right now and what the product needs. And that's even harder to measure in the Expensify case, for example, mm. where you don't even sell a model. So how can we measure 
if the vision system that Expensify has built is truly aligned with the company. Maybe saving some cost, that's an easy way, there's only to measure, but how much our customers are happier because of that? That's much harder problem to solve. So one thing that I find in practitioner in the B2B space that are very good, the people that I look up to, is the ability to still make a good case of why we should invest in that and to find some proxy of what it means for us to be successful. Okay, even if we can make this A-B testing direct comparison like Amazon would do. Yeah, what are some examples of those kinds of proxies? One that I really like is, well, robustness, which I think is super important. Robustness in two senses. One is the amount of maintenance and kind of like manual work that having this model in production required. Itan yesterday said, the training model, training model is easy if you take up the art part. Imagine doing that yeah. for 600 clients at the same time. So you really need to get your stuff together to be able to do that at scale. So the ability of you to go to retraining and all the deployment phases very smoothly is a very important part of how you build a solution. And the other one, of course, is metrics, right? As in, you need to be able to monitor what you're doing and to make sure that in some sense, you're providing a good service to your client, which may be bottom line, MRR should always go, should always be in a ballpark or whatever, or you can be more fancy and do behavioral testing or all sorts of tests that are like, you know, very important for people to make sure you don't do stupid stuff on somebody else's property. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nice. So let's dig into the first of the kind of those tangible differences that you mentioned and talk a little bit about some of the ways that data is different in B2B context. I imagine that typically one issue is that there's a lot less of it. <laughs> is that the case? Yeah. In my experience, there's a lot less, or it's, it's even subtle. So there's a lot of them cumulative. <laughs> mm. So there's a lot of, if you take together all the customers that a B2B company may have, you may end up with a pretty significant chunk of data. But then when you go and look at the ML deployment, ML deployment are always per customer, of course, for all sorts of common sense, but also legal and privacy complication that you can all imagine. Okay. So at the end of the day, you end up, instead of having one big client, you're having like a hundred of them, which are big-ish, sort of that, but they're not as big as you may have with, you know, with an Amazon or Walmart or something like that. So that's problem number one, of course, which makes some impact on the modeling that you can do. As everybody knows, there are some models that are you know, more prone to work very well with a lot of data, but they don't really work with small data and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So the data constrains somehow the second aspect, which is the modeling aspect, of course. But the second part, which, is, makes it, which I think is really the hardest part, is that it makes it very hard to scale the data part without making unnecessarily costly OR for the company. What do I mean by that? If you have one data source is like your Amazon recommender and people click on Amazon, then every time you make an improvement, every time you collect some new data, that gets fed in into one big data distribution. Their model is trying to capture in some way. Yeah. But if you have a hundred of them, every time somebody clicks on something, that just impact one of these hundred small distribution. It doesn't translate to any of the other ones. So, which is one of the reasons why building ML company at scale has a very different unit economics than building SaaS at scale because there are some fixed costs that don't really go down the more customer you have, because you still have to chase this long tail of prediction every time you collect new data points. So that would say is a major point when you plan a company, thinking like an entrepreneur, when you plan a company in this space, you need to be aware that B2B ML company are very different beasts than normal B2B software. And of course, another one is data quality, right? And data standardization in general. If you own your website, if you are Amazon, you can interact literally with every part of the system to make sure to some extent that everything flows seamlessly, or at least you can ping somebody in your company and tell them to fix it. 
if you are downstream from that, like if you provide e-commerce with a recommender system, the website is theirs. So even this relationship of data feeding is way less direct. Of course, you can mm. nudge them, you can ask them to be better, but it's not that you can literally ping somebody in your same company to fix that. They may have a different timeline that you have. Yeah. So that makes your job much, much harder because again, this is one customer. Think of like a hundred different customer with a hundred different data in some sense. And you all need to be standardized to be working with one model type. So it's, it's really challenging in that sense and involves a lot of processes, not just code. You know, it's one of those problems that cannot be solved just by having good code. It's one of the problems that, that involves actually people. And we know that people problems are the hardest to solve in general. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it sounds like one of the implications of this idea of kind of not owning the full stack to the customer is that if you have some cool idea for wanting to collect more data to enhance your model, you might not be able to execute that or not easily. Uh, yeah, in most cases, you may not because you have to go back to your customer to the, who owns the front end to maybe change the instrumentation or add something or convince him that this experiment is worth doing. But that, of course, uh, lengthen the, the feedback and, and the cycle of operation, which is why my suggestion is always when you start logging things, Try to log as much as you can from day one in that domain, <laughs> because truly you never know when that feature yeah. is gonna be useful. I remember, like my back in the Tuzo days, 2017, when we started the company, we started geocoding to a rough extent. For example, the city level, where our shopper w- was doing shopper, like completely anonymous. But at that time, we didn't even have any geographical feature in our model whatsoever. It turns out that we never had one when we sold the company, so we never used it. But we plan for it in advance so that year after, when we just wanted to do some analysis to ask ourselves how much weather, in that case was atmospherical weather, influence shopping, we could ask the question without going back to our clients. Because we have accumulated years of data mm. that at that time we didn't know it was useful, but we just thought it may gonna be useful. But at that time, you know, they basically gave us like this treasure that we can just go and mine for new insight. So my suggestion is always flying with laws and privacy and whatever, but log as much as you can because you never know what the new feature is going to be or you never know what your new cool ML idea you're going to have. Now, does that, practically speaking, did you have a process where if anyone came up with an idea that was logged immediately or you know, was there discussion about it and just the bar was very high to say, no, we're not going to log that? Did everything literally that was ever come up with logged? The, the, the cool thing about e-commerce, that e-commerce is a very advanced field compared to other type of verticals. Mm-hmm. Because e-commerce, like some of the best AI companies in the planet are e-commerce, of course. So everybody in e-commerce is kind of, kind of understand the idea you need to log a lot of stuff. Tools like Google Analytics, for example, that almost everybody uses, already put that idea into retailers' head. So when you come in as a provider of recommendation and say, hey, I want to log as much as Google Analytics does, everybody is typically happy to kind of like concede to that. And Google Analytics log a lot of stuff. So the, the truth of the matter is that we have basically a protocol to copy in a good sense. It's like, hey, this is what Google logs to provide people feedback. And this is condensed years of analytics in retail. So if we start from this list, we can't be that wrong. And it turns out that actually, you know, it was a very good list. It's also a lot of stuff, but again, there's a precedence you can point to and say, hey, if Google did it and you're happy with it as a provider, let us do the same, basically. Yeah, yeah. I want to take a second here to encourage folks in our audience to chime in with questions via the chat on the platform. 
uh, we'll be working those into our conversation. It looks like we've got a couple of folks in the chat that are working on B2B, or I've mentioned that they're working on B2B there. I'm sure there are others, but it also strikes me that a lot of this conversation, while it doesn't necessarily, or while it may not apply to kind of the team working on the biggest problems at Facebook or Uber, there probably are teams in a Facebook, in a Uber that have a lot of these same challenges. Absolutely. The enterprise facing, all the enterprise facing ML application, even in Netflix or Uber or Google, mm-hmm. they resemble for many of these reasons, way more the B2B world or practitioner than their counterparts in the same company. A discussion that I have all the time with the creator of Metaflow, like Bill and Savin, that came from Netflix, is exactly that. Like Metaflow is an open source framework that is born at a big tech, but it's born at a big tech mostly to satisfy the use, not of the people building the recommender system, but everybody, yeah. literally everybody <laughs> else. That in that case re- resembles way more my recommender system life than their own. Like they're more similar to me in some sense than to their own mm. colleagues in, in that respect, totally. And I think there's an argument to be made that in the next 10 years, the biggest like, or the most deployments of ML solution are going to be inside of enterprises of all sizes, more than just the B2B, the B2C or consumer facing. There's a huge amount of potential there. If we get better at this, everybody's going to benefit. Not just the companies, but also, of course, you know, the consumers at the end and all the process that gets in line thanks to technology. Yeah, so maybe a question that folks can reflect on or, or use as a prompt for their questions are, how can you scale down machine learning ML ops to meet the smaller use cases or these B2B use cases? But let's jump into some of the differences on the modeling side between what a Facebook might do and what a B2B company can do. So I think a lot of what we said before is kind of a super relevant for model. Like a lot of like, of course, we all like to build model. Like, model is the cool part. Like, model is, you know, is the shiny thing that gets on the <laughs> on the CEO, you know, slides or like or whatever cover or whatever you care about. And of course, models, you know, are very important. Nobody's saying they're not. But one thing that we realize as a field, especially, you know, with a bunch of innovation in the last couple of years, is that model, up to a certain extent, are getting commoditized. As in, there's a bunch of best practice in architecture that we know they kind of work. You know, you got to throw tabular data to GBoost. You can kind of throw language data to a transformer. Yeah. It's going to be, well, it's going to be fine. You know, it, it may not be the best thing ever, but it's going to be fine enough for you to start iterating, which again is the most important thing, like getting fast to production. I think that makes people realize that unless your model is mission critical and tied to revenue in the same sense that we discussed before, so unless 1% of better modeling makes you a billion dollar, I think that people then realize, and when modeling is solved, there's the entire thing around models before and after, which is, I think, is conventionally what MLOps refer to. Mm-hmm. That is actually the hard part. Like we thought, for some reason, what we thought was the cool PhD stuff is the one that we solved before, because it's mostly a code problem, not a people or a process problem. So we kind of solve modeling in some sense, but now we're left with the mess that models do before and after. And so I think that that's an important lesson to be taken here. So at the reasonable scale, as we say, models are important up to a certain extent, but after you reach that level of performance, the solve your use cases, there's typically not much of an interest or an ROI in spending another month tuning that or tweaking that or trying another architecture and so on and so forth. Again, that's very different from the advertising machine learning model at Google, which I don't know what it does, but if you improve that by 0.1%, 
that's going to be a huge success for the company. So at some point, also the type of people that may enjoy working in these two teams may be different. Somebody is the guy that wants to build stuff from zero to one mm. and, and solve the end-to-end -end use cases. The other guy is the ultra-optimizer. He may be the guy that for 10 years just does the ranking optimization just because he does that. And I think that also reflects, you know, different personalities, different choices that companies make to be successful. And so you're saying that B2B might not be the place for that ultra optimizer. I totally think it's not. I, if you, what you like to do is shaving off the last 0.5% of MRR, yes, you're probably better off at, at Amazon than Bankwheel. Absolutely. Yeah, we had a great conversation about build versus buy yesterday afternoon, and there are some implications here. It sounds like you're a proponent of build probably more so than, you know, folks at Facebook or Uber for B2B companies. Sorry, buy. I'm buy. buy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a huge, yes, I'm kind of like a huge buy person in that sense. We're buy, and I, and I think it reflects also some of the discussion that you're having yesterday. Buy doesn't literally mean just, you know, buy and forget, but it, <laughs> of course means buy may also mean use an off-the-shelf open source, like the metaphor of my example sure. before, like, so buy is in you, they use something that other people did, but then you have buy to take, don't build. Exactly. But then you have to take the, <laughs> the, the work in yourself to kind of make it work with the rest of your stack. And that's totally, that's totally the case. I think the, the value is in the B2B, especially is understand your, what your company needs from ML, understand what makes you unique and what's your unique take on it. In our case, Ecoveo has been, for example, session-based recommendation, that recommendation that work without assuming to know anybody from the user, which was a huge innovation in the B2B space is, is the only offering of the kind available still today. And then everything else, buy, quote unquote, buy, like don't build. Mm -hmm. My customer doesn't care if I'm using Metaphor, if I manually spin up GPUs. My customer doesn't care if I use Snowflake or if I manually wrangle CSV files. So for me, I just buy everything that makes me productive and it makes me get the result as fast as possible in the most efficient way as possible. My customer cares about recommendation though, so I need to be good at that. So once in your mind is clear what adds value to your company, optimize for that and everything else, buy, at least in the beginning, mm -hmm. because you don't know, you know what you don't know in the first, so buy and use what other people have been doing, and then you can always go back and change your mind. It's much harder to do the other way around, spending six months building something that you, don't, that you realize you don't need. Yeah, Dan asks in the chat, one way that his company's approached this is to really focus on reusability. So for example, in doc with document understanding, try to build tools that can be reused across different document understanding use cases. I guess this is a an example of build, sorry, buy. You're kind of buying the thing that you built previously, maybe. Do you see reuse as playing a big role in efficiency for B2B teams? When you can, that's, that's a good strategy for, for the unit economics problem we mentioned before. But mind you, while English is English everywhere, so sure, I learned something about English with my model. I can reuse it in an angle English document. Recommendation are not this case, for example, because if I recommend an electronics shop or recommend something in a shoe shop, of course, I can reuse what I learned about electronics to sell you bags. So depending on what you actually end up doing, there may be some reusability to it, which is great. If you can, please do that. However, it turns out that the world is, is, is such that a lot of very successful applications of ML at scale are actually per deployment. So there's not much you can reuse aside from the code, of course, that you can just port from one to the other. Mm -hmm. 
John asks, referring back to your comment about logging information that you've got, even if you don't need it, what about the notion that if you ask for data that you obviously don't need, a proportion of that data will be junk data? Have you run into that? I will ask back, what's the problem with junk? Let's say we ingest data that, that I obviously don't need, don't need today. <laughs> like, let's say, what's the worst that can happen? It's just going to sit there in my store like nobody's going to go to query, right? I think... I'm not suggesting wasting money on, on storage you don't need. That's, that's not the message here. Yeah. But generally speaking, with storage becoming exponentially cheaper over the years, the cost of you missing a use cases because you didn't log something and now you have to go back and log it and wait six months to have enough data is way more than logging up to be a bit more generous in the first place and pay a couple of hundred dollars more to Snowflake every month. That's for sure. The worst thing can happen in people building ML feature is having an idea that will put your company ahead and realize you need to wait three months to collect enough data to even see if that works. That's literally the worst thing I can have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The next differentiator on your list is tooling. We talked a little bit about this from a build and buy perspective. Are there other differences in the way you see folks tooling for a B2B? So the planetary scale comes, comes with a couple of caveats, right? First, of course, there are a lot of custom systems because they need to play nicely with other custom systems. So at some point, mm -hmm. the custom system just asks for another custom system. Yeah. And the other thing that you may have latency or scale or security, whatever constraint that are not just there for the off-the-shelf market. On the smaller scale, the reasonable scale side, there are two things. First, you're not as unique as you think, as I said. You know, you're not as special as you think. <laughs> meaning that, in a good sense, meaning that the problem that you have a problem already been solved by somebody because you are in the proportion of the distribution that is fairly, that there's a few companies there. Mm -hmm. So if there's a tool that has been proven successful for small enterprises, chances is it's going to work for you, it's going to work for you as well. So that's one part. And the second part is you don't have that many people lying around probably. Like you don't have like a hundred engineers to build a custom tool over a custom tool. So buying is also a way for you to use the people that you have in the most effective way. Meaning that A, they don't do frustrating work, like gluing stuff or fixing pipelines or stuff that honestly, ML people don't want to do. And they're very expensive, you know, and they're very in demand. Uh, so that's one point. And second, again, you get the most marginal value from that. Like if, if I pay an ML people to the recommender system, I don't want it to, to handle infrastructure or to fix my Kubernetes setup. I want to just have proper abstraction that allows that person to be in that sense, to be productive. A bigger question would be, is only SaaS when you say don't buy, when you say don't build, it's literally buy as offloading entirely what you need to do with a SaaS platform, or it may be a, an intermediate solution when you reuse some tools, but you actually host it yourself. And that is more subtle. Mm -hmm. As in, there may be an initial scale when you're happy to offload everything, like even an orchestrator, for example. Like typical example, say Airflow, very popular orchestrator in the open source world, but there's also at least two very famous platforms, you, you know, AWS and, and Astronomer that you can buy. Then after a while, if you decide that, well, you know what? This airflow thing, I want to orchestrate it myself because I'm big enough, it's important enough, you can always bring it back to in-house and somehow do like in-between build and buy. The open source to me is like an in-between. You have some cost of the building because you have to maintain it and integrate it. Yeah. But also some virtue of the buying, as in this is a proven tool that has been used hundreds of times before. So if I use it, again, I'm likely to be within the 90% region of uh, capabilities that I actually need to do my job. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I thought that was a really interesting point about building in particular. You kind of referenced this hidden cost of building is that 
it predisposes you to needing to build the next thing and the next thing and the next thing after that because you're not using off-the-shelf things and they're not easily integratable or it requires work to integrate. You're not selecting from a vendor's partners of all the things that it could integrate to fill in a particular slot. Yeah, and there's also incentives in this network effect for vendors to integrate with other vendors, right? Mm -hmm. So if I started with a vendor on open source solution, I'm likely to have, like, again, if you start with Metaflow, you know, they're going to have an Airflow integration, right? Because they're two popular tools. If I'm an orchestrator, Jacopo Flow, whatever it is, now I have to do, you know, let's not do that. (laughs) But now I have to do that myself. That's not a reasonable point. I think there's a lot of cost, like, especially small scale, especially startup scale that, that I know well, opportunity cost is what's going to kill you. Like what's going to kill you is not moving fast enough to build a new thing. And by definition, if you're just building infrastructure that you could have bought, you're not building the next cool thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But one of the themes that played very heavily in that build versus buy conversation yesterday was fear of lock-in. How do you parse that? On this, I'm really, okay, I'm really a contrarian and I really don't care. <laughs> I really don't care. Like I've used for my last five years uh, as a career one cloud provider and I'm fine. Like the speed and reliability that I get by kind of using the past solution is way more than anything else that I will need to do if I kind of move out of that. So I think people say sometimes, well, I may move out over AWS or Azure or whatever. Honestly, <laughs> how many times did that happen? I certainly never did it and I don't plan on doing it. Uh, again, and I think this applies to every cloud provider. Like their solution, when you start in the past approach, are kind of so well integrated typically that at some point is an ecosystem that you know well. When you hire somebody, you have best practices. So I understand the general concern as a conceptual thing, but I think at the scale in which I've lived my most of my life in the last five years, the gain of loading all the problem to AWS like significantly surpasses the question of like, well, what if AWS raises the prices for 10% more next year? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the one thing that wasn't on your list, again, data modeling tooling was team. And I imagine the team setup is going to be different between B2B and B2C. You've talked about one of those ways. You're not likely to find those kind of optimizers, fraction of percent optimizers. Are there other ways the teams differ? Yeah, absolutely. So I, th- I think there's a bunch of things that we learn in B2B to be productive. They may not necessarily translate to B2C, but also they may not necessarily be the norm at B2B. So one thing that we really like is the idea of the end-to-end ML person, which again is kind of a controversial, a controversial idea, which is the idea that your, your ML person is responsible for everything going from the data in Snowflake to shipping the model into production and making sure that it works. So it needs to be comfortable with SQL to extract the data and make sure the data is okay. It needs to be comfortable with building the model pipelines. It needs to be comfortable with you know, shipping into production. Why? Because, well, first we want to enforce ownership and being proud of your work. So no end off. No, I build the model and then I give you the notebook to somebody else. And then it's his fault if somebody goes badly. No, no, it's your entire thing. And second, because again, of kind of efficiency, right? As a smaller scale, we can have that many people around. Like how many people do we even need to start a project? Now, if I need a data engineer, a data analyst, an ML person, a DevOps person, just to ship one model in production, now I have four salaries, and I don't even know if they need them. So our, and I think that ties back to the build part, our job as leader in B2B context is to make sure that if you hire these end-to-end ML people, people that really care about building a product, a feature by themselves, 
you abstract away all the chores, infrastructure, not needed problems they may have. And that's why I want to build everything, to buy everything. I don't want my data science to be preoccupied with Kubernetes or to scaling Spark or to deploy manually into a pod. All of this can be abstracted away from that. But I wanted to be able to take ownership of the business logic that takes the data into a model, into prediction, into feedback. That's what I pay them for. And my job as a leader and of the senior people is to give them the building blocks and the Lego blocks that they can assemble together to get the job done. And me as a leader, the best way for me to do it, or myself, stop building it myself, is picking from the vendors or the open source project that I like, what I believe will make the experience of my team the best possible. And that I think is a, for us, is really a great recipe of how small B2B team can actually be very productive. Of course, at Facebook scale, it doesn't apply. Google scale, it doesn't apply. Like there's entire teams who build the infrastructure for you. But again, you have different constraints. But at a reasonable scale, we find the job of leaders, at least in our case, to be give you the tools and then get out of the way and then hold you responsible and accountable for the entire thing, not just for one tiny piece. Yeah, yeah. Tomorrow morning, this time on our agenda, we've got a fun debate plan to dig into NN versus specialized tools. I'm sure you have an opinion on that as well, but I brought that up to reference the debate we had last time, last year's TwimbleCon, and the debate question was, should every data scientist and ML engineer learn Kubernetes? Sounds like that is a resounding no for... Absolutely, absolutely no, but they should understand they should ship that model to Kubernetes or SageMaker or whatever you're using yeah. because somebody put the abstraction in place for them and then they should follow the life cycle of that to make sure that the model does you know, what, what they think it does. So they need to understand the system perspective, but I don't want them to do YAML file or... <laughs> <laughs> QTTL, deploy, blah, blah, Exactly, blah, yeah, yeah. there aren't enough for me. Like, you know, I don't want the team to do that. But they really need to become one with the data. Like this whole idea that now there's people that are custodian of the data or custodian of deployment, and then this data scientist in the middle doing notebooks, I can stress this enough, is really not a good productive system for company, again, that have a limited amount of resources in, there, in that sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the kind of team member that you describe sounds like what you might call a full stack ML person. They're working on a stack that you've provided for them through buying, but from the perspective of your product or workflow, they're kind of going end to end. Have you found challenges in you know hiring that full stack person, especially given that you're not Facebook? Yeah, I mean, like staffing is uh, of course the elephant in the room of for course. everybody outside yeah. of five companies. And honestly, even at five companies, like because they're keeping on stealing each other people. <laughs> it's of course it's a problem. One thing that I at least in my experience, is that young folks with proper guidance may actually be surprisingly quick to get up to speed to this way of working. Again, because you're not teaching them Kubernetes or scaling Spark, but because you're teaching logic that it will make them more productive. So in my experience, that's one way of being productive. Another one is, well, you need less people. Like if you set up your team properly, two end-to-end ML person, will do the job of 10 that are like kind of continuously ending off stuff. And there's a notebook, the notebook breaks, the dependency doesn't work, the data is not clean, nobody knows what's in the table. So at the end of the day, I know it sounds counterintuitive, but one more expensive person will actually cost you way less than five cheap ones 
just because they five cheap one now, now they're not gonna even compare to the one that you have. Mm-hmm. One thing that I noticed is that good ML team outside of big tech always look understaffed from the outside. When you look at it and people told you how many people did that, you're always surprised like, well, that's very few. But the secret is, if you take away the bottleneck of infrastructure, you need surprisingly small amount of people to build great things. At least that's been our experience. Mm-hmm. You know, there's still, I imagine the you've hired engineers, even though you've only hired two, they're still going to have that desire to run off and scratch an itch, right? I There's this hole in this thing that you bought me. I love it. Can I spend three months building the thing that would perfectly fit in that hole to automate everything and make everything wonderful? Like, how do you deal with that? That's a very good point. Well, the general thing is that, you know, if fitting perfectly is not really what we need, you know, let's use our time to do better stuff. Yeah. My point is there's no shortage of cool things to do in the ML world. So let's not touch what's working for us. But if at some point this is an existential piece, by all means, let's do that, especially if it's open source. Like rebuilding a SaaS platform is typically not a good investment of anybody's time. But if it's an open source tool, and you can fork it or extend it in some ways. Some tools are better than others in that sense. They make it easier. Mm-hmm. That's totally fine. Like I have completely, we as a team, like extended the functionality of Metaflow several times with our own custom stuff. We still have the core of the platform, but we have our own custom stuff on top. But the platform is designed in such a way that we don't destroy the good just to have the perfect fit with our use cases. So one thing that I would say to leaders picking the tools, keeping this use case in mind, as in, what happens if it doesn't really fit? It, maybe today fits 100%. But what happens if tomorrow is 90? How easy it will be for my team without disrupting everything to get the last 10%? And I think that's an important variable when you decide you know, which tool to pick. Of course, again, with SaaS platform, it's much harder to do this. Yeah. Granted that hiring is always difficult. Samir's curious if you could comment a little bit more on you know, what you've done to improve hiring. Samir observes that adding humanity to the recruiting process has had an impact, uh, but it's not something that many seem to do. Have you, are there things that have worked for you? Being very outspoken and public about what we do has been very helpful, not just in a you know influencer <laughs> influencer sense. <laughs> I like literally doing a lot of open source, publishing our research ideas in the public for everybody to read going to conference, going to event, be very vocal about the type of problems that we had and be very, very honest. So like the type of work that you're going to do with us, like you're going to do cool ML stuff at this scale, solving this problem. So if you want something else, we're not for you. So that's point number one. Like you need to have a brand in a good sense, as in you need to be a person that is distinguishable in the community that does X and Y. And so people will come to you. That's number one. Number two, give back to the community. Like a lot of the young contacts that we have, even for open source project or for research contact, are just because we are there. Like we are in cheap Discord discussing MLOps. We are in Demetrios Slack <laughs> helping out people when they ask to. We are here today. Thanks so much for having us. And another occasion to talk about our experience. And this is a lot of work. Like being present for communities is a lot of work. <laughs> but it also pays off. It pays off to the community because you give back. But also the community at some point is going to be there for you because the next time you build a company, you go and say, hey, I'm building a new company. Hopefully some people will already trust you and know you for what you can do. And so it will be easier for you to attract talent. So for us, being a member of the community has been a huge, both the research part, so going to conferences and so on, and the MLOps and on part, like the open source part. These two communities for us are a never-ending source of joy and also pipeline for people. 
Mm-hmm. So Fahad had a question that I think goes back to our earlier conversation about kind of the nuanced nature of ROI for B2B teams. You mentioned the bottlenecks faced by small companies in terms of achieving sufficient data acquisition and model optimization. So how do those companies achieve the kind of results that are important from a business perspective? I think that's kind of getting at it's hard to collect data. It's, you don't want to overinvest in optimizing models. Like, how do you really identify where the value is for your team? Are there things that you've tips that you've identified for really focusing in on that? Yes. The first thing is put things in production as fast as possible, as cheaply as possible, possibly without ML. The first rule of ML is always never <laughs> use ML, right? Let's say a practical use case is so like, let's say you're building a classification model for sentiment analysis, right? You don't have any data and it's it's totally fine. Let's start with building a model that says if the word super cool is in the tweet, it's going to be positive. If the word bad is in the tweet, it's going to be negative, okay? We're striving here for precision. We don't care of class. A lot of tweets are going to go unclassified, but we just want to get 100 of them every day classified and see how the people react. See if you can tie some value into that. Because to build that, Lambda function is going to cost you three minutes. And then if people never even click on the feature you're building, there's no reason for you to build the entire pipeline. So try always to be incremental. So if you have a sophisticated organization where building your pipeline is relatively easy, you can start with a simple model. But sometimes at day one in an organization, there's no model, there's no blueprint, there's no template. Start with something that doesn't require ML. And once you build the case that that thing is useful, when maybe people click on it, or people complain about it because it's not accurate, which means that people care. So it's great. Then go back to, you know, to everybody else and say, hey, we may have something to it. But don't over-engineer something. Again, exactly. Don't try to beat data sparsity, which is an important problem with itself, before knowing if it's worthwhile. Okay, so that's, I think, would be my trick to try and innovate in that sense. The first thing that you mentioned is is key also. It's what I heard was about iterating quickly and not just trying things from a a modeling perspective, but kind of end-to-end idea, iterate quickly, get things out in the market and see what matters, what has impact. Yeah, absolutely. Speed of iteration bit sophistication like every day of the year. And ML is still a very practical, like it's more hard than science, you know, don't, don't get fooled by the PhDs. Like ML is really more hard than science. So the more things you try, the higher the chance of success, almost by definition. Of course, again, with the experience and with sophistication, you get some boundaries and you get some intuition of what's going to work and what doesn't. But there's no substitution for just trying it out, see how people react and kind of iterate on that. So the faster you can do that, the better it is. Bonus point, if you build a good pipelines, you can swap in the modeling part by taking everything else when the time comes. Or we can improve the data part and keeping the model constant. Like mm-hmm. building good pipelines with good Lego bricks will allow you to selectively improve when time comes, what you need without starting from scratch again. So you're describing experimentation. One of the big challenges with doing experimentation in a B2B context is the signal that you have to compare your results is less. With regards to A-B testing and, and things like that, it takes longer to converge. Or do you find yourself making judgment calls on less data? Or are there things that you do to collect data more more quickly or make those decisions more scientifically, I guess? 
No, no, yeah, I, I guess it depends. So some B2B use cases are still heavily, like for the purpose of a t-test, they still have a lot of data. Like e-commerce is a good example. Like, even a small e-commerce would generate millions of data every day. So typically, that would be enough to do like a standard t-test or whatever you're doing in your expect, like in your A-B testing. So that's typically fine. In other cases, it's more of a question of like, well, people seem to be engaged, but do we want to invest more in that on that? And that's, that's more of a judgment call with other business folks and, and so on and so forth, right? There are some features that even if they're not needed, they may be needed for the business for other reasons. Because the differentiator, because all of your competitors have it. Even if just three people clicks on it, you need to have it because that's the definition of what means to be a platform in some sense. Mm -hmm. And so you just build it. It's a very nuanced, like the point is like, what to build is always the hard discussion. How to build it tends to be, after a certain level of experience, tends to be the easy part. Mm -hmm. But what to build, that is what we decided together as a team, as an organization, to focus our effort on is always the hardest question. So there's no fast answer to that. But yeah, sometimes there's data, sometimes it's just you and the vision that you have for whatever the company is doing. Yeah, yeah. I think Andres in the chat wants to pick a fight with you about recording all the data. <laughs> That's something that I'll let the two of you take offline. Andres, reach out via the platform and schedule a meeting with Jacopo to to run that one into the ground. <laughs> We're going to log everything during the meeting. So just to make, just to make sure. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Jacopo, for a great conversation. It was wonderful to have you on the, at the conference today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been super fun. Guys, if you want to chat more, please reach out. I'm very easy to reach. So thanks again. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.